This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Just a warning, this episode contains mentions of drug abuse and sexual assault. This week, we're talking about a page in the history books that, despite its wide-reaching impact, has always felt a little blank to me. The effects of the crack epidemic are still everywhere, from our music to our legislation, and many of its survivors are still with us. Yet, without historical context, survivors are left to sort out their experiences themselves. And as for the rest of us, today, we mostly see the crack epidemic through a lens of pop culture, be it drug-dealing dramas on screen or jokes we've heard about those addicted to crack. My friend, author and journalist Donovan X. Ramsey, has been on a mission to change that with his new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Misunderstood. You went heavy on the misunderstood. <laughs> you was trying to give people some understanding with the book. Period. I'm giving Tasha Scott. What I need from you is understanding. <laughs> exactly. 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 Coming up, Donovan's going to help us make sense of crack era representation in the media, where it shows up today, and why we can't seem to let it go. Donovan, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Hey, Brittany. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. In the past five years, we've gotten a number of prestige shows by and for Black people about the crack epidemic. I'm thinking Snowfall, Power Book 3, Raising Canaan, Black Mafia Family. Full disclosure, I am a fan of Raising Canaan myself. But what do you think we're looking for when we watch these shows? Those shows, those movies you know, as as we affectionately call them, hood movies or hood shows, they are shows about ambition at their core. Mm. We tend to like these shows about the trials and the triumphs of these dealers because they're about somebody that makes something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, that we run the risk of forgetting all the other people who were impacted by the crack epidemic when we mm. focus so much on the dealer or when we focus so much on this rise and fall of one individual that we forget that their, you know, lives are also being impacted by larger social forces. Mm. That story is much harder to tell. Yeah, I think that's actually along the lines of what I was thinking about when I'm thinking about why people... um you know, enjoy watching these stories. I mean, you know, in general, people love crime and gang stories. Scarface, Goodfellas, The Godfather, you know what I mean? A lot of Mm -hmm. these are considered modern classics. And there's just so much drama and moral conflict baked into all those. But in thinking about the the crack epidemic and the crack era, um, to follow the dealer is to follow a hero or anti-hero, which makes sense like narratively, but mm-hmm. you know, many of us would rather see ourselves as in the hero rather than in the victim. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. If we're interested in the era, that there are more opportunities to feel good if you're following somebody who is getting rich rather than somebody who is struggling through addiction or even somebody that's trying to figure out policy to how to stop it. 
even though I should say in putting together this book, we also can't flatten out drug addicts because people who became addicted to crack were often the most fun, right? They were the person who just happened to stay at the party the longest. And they tend Mm. to have good senses of humor. And if they survived the crack epidemic, it's because they were witty and sharp and could think quick on their toes and, you know, also hustle to make money to support their habit and to keep their lives going. That um, I have yet to interview somebody who is in recovery or even still actively using that isn't a dynamic person. And I think that mm. uh, that, that was really eye-opening for me to be able to, to have that experience with people that I wasn't as curious about going into it. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because despite what you just said, crack and crack users are often used as a punchline on TV and in movies and music lyrics and stand-up comedy. You know, crack has even been a part of some of the internet's most memorable moments. You know, like like Whitney Houston's infamous crack is whack quote. Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? Crack is whack. I think about how often her addiction became the butt of jokes about crack and cocaine, like those on Mad TV. Even though our societal attitudes around addiction have changed considerably, crack is still kind of allowed to be the butt of the joke. Why do you think that is? Because we flattened these dynamic experiences and individuals into tropes. The crackhead is a symbol, and it became that through a Mm -hmm. period of misinformation and propaganda, but also because people are, I think, extremely uncomfortable with the subject. Hmm. Those of us that experience the epidemic up close and personal, sometimes we laugh to keep from crying. What addiction did to Whitney Houston was, was really sad, and she is still beloved by lots of folks. I think being able to like laugh at some of the things that she said and did when she was, you know, struggling through her addiction can make it feel not so bad, right? That if we can still kind of shine a light on like the comedy and like the absurdity of some of those situations. Hmm. But I think that, you know, when it's not coming from a place of empathy, it's just cruelty. It brings me to my next question. Like, we're currently in another drug epidemic, the opioid epidemic. And I mean, I think it's great that society seems to be more sensitive to the ravages of opioid addiction, but I can't forget how the victims of the crack epidemic were treated. You know, you know, for example, like the term crack baby is is now thought of as a pejorative, but it was used as a proper term, quote unquote, proper term in newspapers and magazines in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I, I cannot imagine a child born of an opiate-addicted person being called a name like that. Why do you think the opioid epidemic has been treated so differently by not just the media, but also legislators? Now, Brittany. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just asking questions. I know. I'm just asking questions, darling. I'm just asking questions. You know, I don't want to oversimplify it, right? Because cocaine is a very different substance than an opiate. So you get different behavior among users. Cocaine users are energetic and opioid users are lethargic. That dealing of cocaine was something that was done in open air markets. So typically on street corners, which then led to turf Mm -hmm. wars. 
early on in the opioid epidemic, we were talking about prescriptions. So the sites for drug dealing were actually doctor's offices. Mm. And that leads to different kinds of policing and different perceptions of it. But I think that the main factor really is race, that the people impacted by opioids have been white. And as a result, you know, that most Americans who are white see themselves in those people and they see themselves, you know, also in the dealers and they then have much more empathy. Hmm. I should say, though, that more empathy Hmm. doesn't mean that we are smarter as it relates to policy or that the potential for shame and fear is not there. It's clear that media representation of a drug affects how our society treats, helps, or punishes those who use it. And in so many ways, white news reporters and Hollywood execs pathologized crack as an urban super drug whose users were to be feared and ostracized. But not all mass media saw it that way. According to Donovan, some of the more realistic and sensitive representations of the crack era came from Black creators of the 80s and 90s. Writing this book gave me a new appreciation for hip-hop culture. Mainstream media didn't really pay attention to crack until, you know, the mid to late 80s, about 85 to 87. But it's in the music as early as 82, 83. Hmm. Songs like White Lines by Grandmaster Flash. My white lines go a long way, either up your nose or through your vein with nothing to gain except killing your brain. For people, you know, that are listening who love hip-hop, you can think about songs like Night of the Living Bassheads by Public Enemy. Right. Even though hip-hop of that period kind of has a mixed record in terms of its messaging, a lot of misogyny, a lot of violence, Mm -hmm. I will say that the messaging on crack in particular is consistent. It is consistently anti-crack. And that continued on through the end of the epidemic. And, you know, I would also point to the filmmaking. When I was a kid and I watched New Jack City and Chris Rock is playing the addict character Pookie. I got no control over it, man. I try to kick, man. They be calling me, man. I just got to go to it. I thought, oh, I don't know what is going on, but I don't want that for my life. Hmm. In Jungle Fever, Samuel L. Jackson's character of Gator, who, you know, steals his his mom's color TV to get high. See, mama, if you gave me the money, I'd been gone before he came back. Now give me some money. If I had any money, I'd give it to you. You got money. You know, it it was heartbreaking to see that. They were documenting experiences and perspectives that news media simply was not. And we have more of a complete record because of the work that they were doing in pop culture. Coming up, we get into the origins of the crack fiend stereotype and how the American dream fanned the flames of the drug economy. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. You share in your book that, that this association between cocaine addiction and Black people and criminality was established by the media long before the 70s and 80s. Talk to me about how far back the stereotype of the cocaine-addicted Black person goes. Oh, my God. You know, that was something that surprised me in my reporting because I hadn't realized that Black people had been associated with cocaine going back to the 1900s. As early as cocaine became accessible and popular in this country, and it was put into drinks like Coca-Cola and um, lots of different tonics. 1906, you have the Atlanta race riots, which was really a massacre of Black folks in Atlanta, starting because of this idea that Black men hopped up on cocaine were raping white women. So white folks throughout Atlanta gathered and they worked their way through the bars and the businesses that sold drinks like Coca-Cola, which included coca leaf extract in its recipe. They destroyed those businesses, and then they worked their ways into Black residential neighborhoods and destroyed them. It's a long part of our history. This idea of substances creating monsters out of Black people. Mm -hmm. There were these articles that appeared all throughout the country using language like Negro cocaine fiends, which is so striking, right? Because that language of fiend and fiending is something that continued all the way into the 20th century. Right. That's like very common parlance when talking about drug addiction or specifically crack. Right. You know, Tupac says on on Dear Mama, uh, even though you were a crack crack fiend, fiend, you always were were a a black black queen. Right. Exactly. Mm. And... It's important to say that because all communities use drugs, you can just associate a group with a substance, criminalize it, and then it becomes this mechanism for disrupting people's lives. You make this point in in your book that cocaine in the 1970s was not just a drug to be used or sold, but for some economically devastated Black people in America, it was a vehicle for ambition toward economic stability, especially for people who had been shut out of the middle class. And also, you know, for people who had little to show for the gains of the civil rights and Black power movements. Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine that there may be some people who struggle with this thought. Hmm. How do you lay it out to them? You know, there is a song. The psalmist (laughs) once said, ain't no stopping us now. We on the moon. (laughs) 
that song in the 1970s was like our anthem. That there was this perception that the civil rights movement had opened up all of these opportunities. There was this idea that there was nothing left holding us back. So you saw a real push Mm. towards assimilation. The goal is to finally enter the mainstream of American culture. On television, you know, when you watch a show like The Jeffersons, it's moving on up. Different Strokes is a Black family being adopted by a rich white family. Welcome, gentlemen. How about that, Willis? Downtown two minutes and already we're gentlemen. (laughs) Time and time again, you're getting these messages that we're supposed to be entering white life and leaving the ghettos. Well, if you're somebody living in the ghetto who doesn't have the great fortune of being adopted by a rich white family, (laughs) (laughs) then you start to think maybe that there's something wrong with you. Hmm. That you want to wear polo and Izod and Lacoste, these markers of middle-class identity, just like everybody else. So then for young people who didn't see a way out of their neighborhoods, who didn't feel like they were moving on up, cocaine becomes this incredible substance that can change their fortunes. It was their prohibition. It was this unprecedented opportunity to like find your fortune. And that's exactly what people did. The average drug dealer didn't become wealthy selling crack. He was able to pay his mom's rent, maybe buy a car, and buy some nice clothes. And that's why people did it. Hmm. They do illustrate this search for the American dream. Or, you know, another way of saying it is that Black people are also Americans. Hmm. That Black Americans want the same things as everybody else, and that the circumstances of our lives are are different. Hmm. Well, Donovan, thank you so much. This was a really, really thoughtful and, and, and just well-researched, well-written book, and I'm really glad we got to talk about it today. Thank you so much for having me. Donovan X. Ramsey's new book is titled When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. Engineering support came from Stacy Abbott. We have fact-checking help from Nicolette Kahn. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. 
Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.